It might not be so lonely at the top for Joe Biden much longer. The lead starts right now. Breaking news, we've got a brand new CNN poll unveiling right here on the lead who's surging and how much damage was done to the former vice president's lead after those crucial first debates. President Trump taking a historic walk into North Korea, but what's the next step? A new report suggests it might mean letting Kim Jong-un keep his nuclear weapons. Plus, we're joined by a cartoonist who says he lost his job after his depiction of President Trump playing golf over the bodies of dead migrants went viral. The latest evidence of the hazards of political cartooning in the Trump era. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with breaking news, our very first look at our brand new CNN poll, giving us insight into where the 2020 Democratic presidential hopefuls stand after the very first debates. Former Vice President Joe Biden is still in first place, but he has plummeted 10 percentage points since May. The big story in this poll, Senator Kamala Harris has shot up to second place after her widely praised debate performance. Senator Elizabeth Warren has also gone up significantly and is in third place within the margin of error with Harris. Senator Bernie Sanders rounding out the top four, also going down. CNN's David Chalian is at the magic wall. And David, wow. The debates obviously had a, a huge impact on this very fluid race. Uh, no doubt about it, Jake. You just were going through this new shuffled race here. This poll was taken entirely after both of those nights of debating took place in Miami last week. And we've got a top tier here. You see Biden's need lead has significantly narrowed 22 percent. Harris at 17 percent. Warren at 15 percent. Sanders at 14 percent. Nobody else cracks 5% in this poll. I want you to take a look at the change over time. You noted Joe Biden down 10 percentage points since May. Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren doubling their support since May. Harris up nine, Warren up eight. Sanders is down four, Buttigieg about even, uh, down one point since May. What's behind some of uh, Biden's support, why he still holds that narrow lead? The African-American vote is still critical to him. 36% among African-Americans in this poll are with Biden, 24% for Harris, 12% for Warren, 9% for Sanders. You see here the battle among the white vote a lot closer. It is this advantage among African-American voters that is keeping Joe Biden at the lead in the moment. And I want you to see this, Jake. I think this is really interesting. Uh, We see Kamala Harris shooting up to that second place stop. But look at this on the issues. Whether it's the economy, healthcare, or climate, we asked Democrats, who do you think is best equipped uh, to handle it? And she is well below on those issues, her top tier competitors here, except for one issue that we tested, race relations. She is well ahead here. 29% say she is best equipped to deal with race relations compared to Joe Biden at 16%, Sanders at 13 Booker at 9 and Warren at 6 Jake very concerned about whether or not their eventual nominee will be able to beat President Trump in the general election. What are they saying about that in this poll? This has been the animating feature of this Democratic primary so far, and we still see it here. More than six in 10 Democrats, 61 percent, that it is more important for them to have a nominee that has a strong chance of beating Trump than the 30 percent who say, no, 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 I want somebody who shares my positions on the issues. And take a look. This is Joe Biden's strong suit. We asked people, who does have the best chance of beating Trump in your mind? Among these Democrats, 43% say Joe Biden. He is running away with it. 13, 12, and 12 for Sanders, Harris, and Warren. If a candidate is able to pierce 
Joe Biden seemingly hold on seeming to be the one that can best defeat Donald Trump most easily, that could have serious implications for his candidacy, Jake. All right, David Chalian, thank you so much. Let's chat about this with our experts. Uh, Jackie, let me just start with you. Joe Biden's lead down to just five percentage points uh, over Kamala Harris, six uh, or seven or so uh, over Elizabeth Warren. The race really seems to be opening up. It does. It does. And you could you could kind of see that happening in the aftermath. What you were hearing from people after Kamala Harris had that really strong performance. That said, one of the striking parts of this poll, given what Kamala Harris took it to Biden, the issue of busing, black voters are still overwhelmingly with Joe Biden. That hasn't changed. Uh, so he's still that is still very much a stronghold hold for him. And uh she hasn't been able to shake that. And, and we should still point out this is still early. Uh, this is a national poll. The state-by-state polls are obviously uh, more important when it comes to the, those crucial deadlines in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. Still, the Biden campaign, they can't be happy about this. They, they probably are not happy about going down, certainly. After that debate performance, uh, the, I, you would think that this is kind of good news in the fact that it wasn't worse. Like, <laughs> this is like that. Kamala Harris really showed herself in that debate as a leader. She was on that stage leading and show, and saying whatever and saying what needed to be said and showing herself in that way. And that's what Biden did not do. But when you see that he still has the strong support with black voters, what you see is that black voters are not just voting on one issue. They're not just going after the candidate who is black. That's never been true. It's not true in this case. But it does show that Kamala does or Kamala Harris does have some room to grow and to see if she can make her case that she can be the one to beat Trump. And she also has some room to grow if you look at the issue areas where she needs to expand her portfolio. Amaya, let me ask you, I mean, one of the earliest lessons I ever got in polling was it doesn't matter where the numbers are so much as where they're headed. And you have Joe Biden since May down 10, Bernie Sanders since May down four and uh, Kamala Harris up nine, Elizabeth Warren up eight. Clearly, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren are experiencing a surge. I think people are being open to their candidacies in terms of, you know, where they are on the issues. But certainly uh, the debate performance has made a difference for both women in the race. Uh, And so Warren was clearly the standout in the first night. Uh, She was able to come across as natural while also, of course, sharing her policy positions in a very clear way, uh, in a concise way. Kamala Harris dominated the stage in the second night, uh, and she was able to show that she was able to go toe-to-toe with the frontrunner in the race and actually come out ahead. Uh, So clearly that actually made a difference with people, especially people who watched the debate performance, uh, really thought that she was really strong. Uh, And so with that, I should point out that among people who think that they want uh, a candidate to actually beat Trump, Mm -hmm. uh, the issue of race is not separate from that. Because we have to remember that Donald Trump's candidacy and his presidency has been all about divisive rhetoric around race, certainly class and gender. Uh, And so to the point that you have uh, a female candidate potentially uh, who could actually bring it to Donald Trump, Uh, on the very issues that are dividing the nation, I think that we have uh, the potential for uh, uh, an increase uh, among, uh, growing strength among the women. And 43% say Biden has the best (laughs) chance. 43% still say Biden has the best chance, even if Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, uh, impressed them. Yeah, that's the good news for Biden in this polling. But what makes this race exciting is that that support is really soft. 
in that 43 percent number, only 23 percent of those are committed to Biden. 18 percent are to Harris. 18 percent are to Warren. So what that tells me is that people are willing to look at those two female candidates if they think they can beat Trump. And that's why Kamala is going up, because she stood on that stage and showed that she would go after a front runner. And more than anything, someone has to be able to perform well on TV in a way that can take it to Trump. And so Joe Biden may Uh, voters may believe he is most equipped to take on Trump, but that is a very soft hold he has on them. But let's let's look at the racial breakdown, if we can, just for a second. I think it's a question number five. Black voters, 36 percent with Joe Biden, uh, Kamala Harris, 24 percent, Liz Warren, uh, 12, Sanders, 9, Buttigieg, 0 percent with black voters. Uh, And then you look at white voters, Biden, 20, Harris, 17, uh, Warren, 16, Sanders, 15, Buttigieg, Six. It's very clear that black voters are uh, Joe Biden's, uh, the, the, the pillar of Joe Biden's support right now. He does much better with them uh, than he does with the, the Democratic electorate as, as a whole, um, as does Kamala Harris, I should point out, with 24 percent higher than her normal 17 percent. When you have regular overall 17 percent, when you have Biden, who was the vice president of the first black president, this is where it does play to Biden's strength to kind of bear hug Obama as tightly as he can. Barack, he calls him. (laughs) His his buddy, his friend, Barack, as tightly as possible. And to say, look, I stood with him, I stood behind him, and I helped get those goals accomplished, and I can do that again. So that is is a strength for him. But I think as as Kamala Harris gets to be known more, that's the question of whether she can win over those black voters. She's not going to have, she's not known as well as Joe Biden, who is near universal uh, name recognition. So is the question is, as people get to know her more, will they continue to flock to her? Let me ask you a question, Amanda, because I heard from a lot of mm-hmm. Republicans who are Trump critics, such as yourself, mm-hmm. that the Democratic Party really scared them, that the party was so far to the left, yeah. everybody raising their hand in terms of uh, free uh, health insurance for undocumented immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kamala Harris, since the debates, talked about how she supports busing now. She wants busing now and other uh, efforts, uh, federal efforts to, to promote integration. What, is that what you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the no limits on abortion, amnesty, the position where they're going with health care scares a lot of Republicans. You can look at Trump and be like, we don't want that. But whoa, Democrats should really think about where they're going on health care in particular, because there is a lot of overhang from Obamacare where people's health care did get disrupted. And now they're saying, OK, we're just going to take away even private health care insurance. Mm-hmm. And I think this is reflecting the polling with Kamala, because the bad news for her is that she's still shaky on policy. While people may think that she can take it to Trump, she really doesn't have the policies yeah. laid out. And if she's going to go there with busing. Goodness, you better well, explain that. You mentioned health care, particularly on health care. She during, uh, you know, the, the town hall, she said initially to you that she was you know, all in to met for Medicare for all. And now it seems like it's not necessarily the case. There's a misunderstanding. She was talking about this. She was talking about that. It's not really clear where she is on Medicare for all and on where she is on health care. And you're right because of that. I mean, that's something that Trump will, of course, take it to and make it um, a lot worse. The other thing, though, what I'm wondering is, does how she performed in that debate encourage other candidates to take it to Joe Biden yeah. in these next debates? Because this clearly incentivizes a straw, mm-hmm. not not any hit, because mm-hmm. obviously Eric Swalwell did not right. <laughs> go up in the polls, <laughs> but a good, solid hit like Kamala Harris we saw. We'll see. Let's, rem- go ahead. Let's remember that we are in the primary, and right. uh, six out of ten Democratic primary voters actually do believe that undocumented uh, immigrants should have access to health care. Right. Uh, and so, you know, this but is a primary. But four out of ten don't. 
That's right. But yeah. this is a primary. That's right. still a majority. Yeah. <laughs> this is a primary, and uh, people are clearly reaching out to the base uh, and seeking to appeal. Uh, so I think that it's important to remember that. All right, everyone stick around. Don't forget to tune in to the next Democratic presidential debates. They will be hosted by CNN in Detroit, Michigan. That's July 30th and 31st right here on CNN. Coming up, questions about how the State Department is accused of using taxpayer-funded diplomatic security to run personal errands for the Secretary of State, such as picking up his dog or picking up dinner. It's an exclusive you'll only see on CNN. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead today, while Senators Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren have shot up in CNN's brand new poll of Democratic voters taken after last week's debate, Mayor Pete Buttigieg has other numbers to crow about. The South Bend, Indiana mayor announcing he raised $24.8 million since March for his campaign, almost all of it spendable in the primaries. And as CNN's Phil Mattingly now reports, this news comes as the Biden campaign hints at growing grassroots fundraising support itself, even after a debate many of Biden's campaign advisors wish had gone better. South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg today laid down a major marker of the $24.8 million variety, cementing himself in the top tier of the crowded Democratic presidential primary field when it comes to campaign cash. The head-snapping second quarter haul, more than triple what he raised a quarter prior from nearly 300,000 individual donors with nearly $23 million in cash on hand. Obviously, we're very pleased with, uh, uh, with how the debate went. I think it was a chance to uh, explain uh, what we're about, why I'm running to some people who've never tuned in before. Buttigieg's first out-of-the-gate number now becomes the barometer for other top-tier candidates. Today, Joe Biden's campaign sent an email to supporters saying they, quote, blew our fundraising goal out of the water. But Biden's team did not release a specific dollar amount yet. Senator Kamala Harris spotlighting her debate performance. There was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Harris keying on this explosive moment to raise more than $2 million in just the 24 hours after the exchange, according to her campaign. Harris also adding two new endorsements to her portfolio. Representatives Bobby Rush and Frederica Wilson, two members of the crucial Congressional Black Caucus, announced their support Monday. All as Harris received unified support from her Democratic challengers on the issue of race. Specifically, this tweet from Donald Trump Jr., the president's son, that seized on a lie perpetrated on social media that Harris's Jamaican and Indian descent meant she was not black. Trump Jr. deleted the tweet, but not before candidates like Senator Bernie Sanders leveled this harsh charge. Donald Trump Jr. is a racist, too. Shocker. And, Jake, the Harris campaign has weighed in as well, comparing it to the birtherism attacks from president for, against President Obama from Donald Trump, saying, quote, it didn't work then, it won't work now. As for Donald Trump Jr., a spokesman said he was genuinely asking a question. He didn't know that Kamala Harris was of half-Indian descent. Once he realized, according to the spokesman, that it was uh, being misconstrued, he immediately deleted the tweet, Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly, thank you so much. Three face-to-face meetings with Kim Jong-un and repeated presidential promises of denuclearization. But will North Korea actually get to keep their nuclear weapons? Stay with us. Our world lead now, President Trump back in Washington after making history as the first sitting American president to walk into North Korea. But despite what the president hoped was a dramatic TV moment with North Korea's despotic leader, Kim Jong-un, It's unclear what, if any, progress President Trump has made towards the stated goal 
of denuclearization. The photo op came as the New York Times is reporting that the Trump administration is considering allowing North Korea to keep its current stockpile of nuclear weapons in exchange for a freeze on nuclear weapons production. A significant moving of the goalposts were that to happen, as CNN's Caitlin Collins now reports. President Trump back in Washington today after taking historic first steps into North Korea. His impromptu sit-down with Kim Jong-un has reignited talks with the Hermit Kingdom. But now there are questions about what those talks will look like. We just had a very, very good meeting with Chairman Kim. The New York Times reports the U.S. may settle for a nuclear freeze instead of denuclearization, a concept the Times says would mean accepting the North as a nuclear power. It's a far cry from the president's demands that Kim surrender his arsenal. This is complete denuclearization of North Korea, and it will be verified. Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, said neither the National Security Council staff nor I have discussed or heard of any desire to settle for a nuclear freeze. This was a reprehensible attempt by someone to box in the president. But it could be an attempt to box out Bolton, who was noticeably absent from the president's trip to the DMZ because a U.S. official said he was on a flight to Mongolia. Bolton may have been missing in action, but the president's daughter and senior advisor wasn't. Ivanka Trump is facing new criticism over the outsized foreign policy role she played in Asia. She summarized Trump's meetings with world leaders, a job typically reserved for national security staff. The Prime Minister Modi and Prime Minister Abe just concluded a meeting with the president. She awkwardly squeezed out the Secretary of State in a photo op, and Ivanka Trump even crossed into North Korea from behind closed doors, while Trump's chief of staff waited outside, an experience she called surreal. Back in Washington, the president is facing scrutiny of his own after warmly embracing multiple authoritarian leaders while in Asia. We met and we liked each other from day one, and that was very important. He lavished praise on the Saudi crown prince, who the CIA recently concluded authorized the brutal murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. They've been a terrific ally. And he touted his relationship with Vladimir Putin after joking about Russian interference in the 2016 election. I get along with President Putin. I get along with Mohammed from uh, Saudi Arabia. Now, Jake, if the administration does allow North Korea to remain a nuclear power, that agreement could end up resembling the Iran nuclear deal, which the president withdrew from because he said it was disastrous. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Max Rose of New York. He serves on the House Homeland Security Committee. He was an Army platoon leader in Afghanistan. Congressman, thanks so much uh, for joining us. The New, York Times Jake, is the New York Times is reporting that the Trump administration would consider something of a nuclear freeze, allowing the North Korean regime to keep its current nuclear arsenal in exchange for no more future production. Would you settle for that agreement? Would that be good enough? No, absolutely not, Jake. Look, this is a politics of foreign policy driven by this president's deep, dark insecurities. Apparently at this point, all you have to do is Twitter flirt with this president and compliment his hair and you can get whatever you want. Uh, This is theatrics through and through. And it's very disappointing to see the president of the United States stooping down to this level. But I also think it's important that we take a step back here and really analyze this situation as a regional problem, not just an issue with North Korea. If we want 
true non-proliferation, mm-hmm. a true end to this conflict in East Asia, then we have got to involve China. It means that we have got to get China to the negotiating table and we have got to step back this tariff crisis. These two issues are interlinked and this president is not acknowledging that at all. Well, let me ask you, because President Obama's uh, former director of national intelligence, General uh, James Clapper, he said the U.S. might ultimately have to accept North Korea as a nuclear power, uh, that the regime is, is unlikely to ever give up its nuclear weapons program. So on, on that broad view of it, he and President Trump don't necessarily disagree all that much. Well, I, I personally think, though, that that's not the issue here. The point is, is that we have got to have a broad-based strategy with a predetermined outcome. We have not established anything. There's no clear negotiations, there's no clear strategy, and there's no regional approach. So I I do disagree with this notion that we should just relinquish this, set it up as an ultimatum, because again, look beyond the region. This is now an invitation to nations like Iran and God knows who else, that there are no consequences to continued nuclear proliferation. It's extraordinarily dangerous and could catalyze a global race for nuclear weapons. And I'm unwilling to settle for that. Supporters of the president say that, you know, most of us um, might not like the actions of people like Putin or President Xi or, or Mohammed bin Sal- uh, Salman or Kim Jong-un, but the reality is the U.S. needs to work with them. And in the case of Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is a key check on Iran. Uh, what, mm-hmm. do you, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, look, well, it's clear that we have to engage with people and we can't have a utopian form of geopolitics. But with that being said, what we are doing right now is we are rewarding bad behavior. Uh, Khashoggi is killed and in response, we have further arms sales to Saudi Arabia and we support them even more in their efforts in Yemen, what is clearly a geopolitical race against Iran. You look at Russia, the president of the United States sits down with Vladimir Putin and jokes about him interfering in future elections. At one point or another, this president has got to understand that Vladimir Putin is laughing at him, not with him. We cannot reward attacks on the homeland, and that's exactly what Russia did in 2016. So we can walk this fine line. This is what this country is all about, but it takes a mature foreign policy, and right now we have exactly the opposite. Let me ask you, uh, you mentioned Iran. Iran has surpassed the, the threshold on uranium uh, enriched uranium production that was li- that was limited by the Obama mm-hmm. uh, nuclear deal, with, which President Trump uh, President Trump withdrew from. The president has said he would sit down with Iran uh, without preconditions. Would you support him doing that uh, to, to try to work out a new nuclear deal with Iran? Well, first of all, yes. And second of all, the administration has got to speak with one voice, because when you speak to the secretary of state around about this, he talks about a series of ultimatums for Iran that are completely unobtainable. We know that Iran will never agree to them. We're doing the same with China. We cannot give people uh, incredibly unreasonable ultimatums or ultimatums that we know they will never assent to and then use that as an excuse for continued escalations. I, I fear that that's what we're seeing in both China and Iran. So I would definitely support us sitting down with Iran, pushing a renegotiation, pushing an expansion 
of the nuclear agreement, one that hopefully does not have a sunset clause and also has constraints on missile development and missile technology. And I definitely think that that is possible. I wanted to ask you what you thought of um, the president's daughter, Ivanka Trump, an advisor um, to the president. She was front and center during the G20 summit meeting with world leaders representing the United States. Um, Take a listen to your Democratic colleague, uh, Congressman uh, John Garamendi, defending the president's decision to have Ivanka as a key advisor and diplomat. He can choose his advisors uh, and he needs to have people that he could trust. And if Ivanka is that person, that's okay. Do you agree, Congressman? Uh, With all due respect to my colleague, John, I don't think the American taxpayer should be subsidizing uh, family trips to to East Asia for the Trump family, as well as subsidizing efforts to bolster Ivanka and Jared's resume. This is not a joke. And right now, this administration is treating our foreign policy as exactly like that. And you know what? I'm not shocked because this is what we get when we have a foreign policy crafted by insecure, overly hawkish, jingoistic draft dodgers. And we have got to reframe Americans' foreign policy. And I have not seen it yet. And we have got to continue to push just for that. Democratic Congressman Max Rose from New York, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks again, Jake. Why sources say taxpayer-funded security agents for Secretary of State Mike Pompeo sometimes feels like, quote, Uber Eats with guns, a CNN exclusive next. In our politics lead today, CNN has exclusively learned that Democrats on a key congressional committee are looking into whistleblower allegations that the State Department's taxpayer-funded security detail is running day-to-day errands for the Secretary of State, picking up the dog, picking up his son, picking up Chinese food, all without him even in the car. And as CNN's Michelle Kaczynski reports, Agents are allegedly complaining at times that they're basically, quote, Uber Eats with guns. Multiple congressional aides tell CNN a whistleblower alleges to Democrats on a key House committee that on multiple occasions, diplomatic security special agents were asked to run personal errands. In one instance, picking up Chinese food for Secretary of State Mike Pompeo when he was not in the car. The whistleblower said it led to complaints the security team was treated like, quote, Uber Eats with guns. Another time, picking up the Pompeo dog from the groomer. The secretary has discussed his fondness for the pets during congressional testimony. I have a stop spot for my golden retrievers. And according to a document provided to the committee and shown to CNN, agents were told to pick up Pompeo's adult son at Washington's Union Station. According to DS protocol, the secretary should be in the car during these kinds of trips, and DS should be doing them only if there's some threat that would necessitate it. The State Department did not deny that these trips took place, but a DS special agent in charge insisted that at no point during my service did he or any member of his family ask me or any member of my team to act in a way that would be inconsistent with our professional obligation to protect the secretary. It's not clear whether these alleged tasks were initiated by Pompeo himself or someone on his staff without his knowledge, but the whistleblower told congressional investigators that there's a culture right now at DS to try to please Pompeo and not make him angry. These are not the kinds of people that go around complaining. Uh, they, they do their jobs and they do them proudly and they do them quietly. And so that you have somebody who felt so strongly about this that they decided to go to Congress, I think that has to be taken seriously. Congressional investigators are also seeking to understand why Pompeo's wife, Susan, 
has her own security detail. This is unusual, according to a former senior DS official who said that if security was granted to a secretary's spouse in the past, it was just for short periods of time and only after a threat assessment for that person was done within an intelligence division of diplomatic security. The whistleblower told congressional investigators that multiple agents understood that the normal procedure was not followed and that they were warned not to use her call sign, which is shocker, over the radios because they, quote, know it's not kosher, something a State Department spokesperson calls absolutely and definitively not true. The spokesperson tells CNN only that an initial threat assessment was done for Susan Pompeo in July 2018. A special agent in charge defended the assignment. Today, the security threats against Secretary Pompeo and his family are unfortunately very real. The Diplomatic Security Service is proud to protect the Pompeo family from those who would harm the Secretary of State and the United States. So in addition to this whistleblower saying that multiple people within diplomatic security feel that proper procedures weren't followed, and these are longstanding procedures, we also know that within the State Department, there have been questions for a while concerning Susan Pompeo's role there. For example, that she was chairing meetings at the State Department about logistics ahead of a recent trip. And now another whistleblower has come forward to these same congressional investigators, somebody from the executive floor of the State Department, saying that staffers there were told to keep discussion of her out of official emails, so has to keep it out of the official record. Jake? All right, Michelle Kaczynski at the State Department for us. Thank you so much. Powerful images in the world lead protesters in Hong Kong rammed their way inside the main government building, the group of mostly young people, all in protective helmets, and all on a mission trying to protect, they say, freedoms in Hong Kong that no one else has in China. And those in the mainland cannot see what's happening because China blocked CNN's signal and banned talk of the protests on social media in China. CNN's Nick Robertson joins us now live in Hong Kong. And Nick, this is a a bold and dangerous move these protesters tried to make. It is, Jake, and I can take you up and show you the windows now where they smashed their way in. You can see how thick this glass is here, double-layered plastic in the middle. This is now a crime scene. The police have put up their police wire. Uh, And if you look behind there, you can see the graffiti that was written up. And just over here to the side where they smashed their way through the steel doors inside to get inside that building, a huge amount of graffiti. We've just heard uh, from the chief executive here saying that there were good protesters, bad protesters today. She said that the rule of law is important. She wants the people of Hong Kong to reflect on that. And what we learned from the police chief this evening in the last couple of minutes is that he had to evacuate his officers because all the civilians workers had left the building. His officers had been under siege. A white powder was being used and he didn't know if it was toxic or not. And that's why he called his police officers out. And that was at nine o'clock in the evening. And that's when the protesters got in. That's when they did the damage. And that's what the chief executive is calling bad, breaking the rule of law. She wants the people of Hong Kong to reflect on that. Jake. All right, Nick Robertson in Hong Kong. Thank you so much. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just visited a border facility in the U.S. And she's making some shocking claims about the conditions she saw there, including saying some migrants... We're being told to drink from toilets. That story next. It's a breaking news in our national league. Just moments ago, Democratic members of Congress alleging horrifying conditions at migrant detention centers near the border. After visiting three of those centers today, New York Congresswoman Alexandria Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted, quote, now I've seen the inside of these facilities. It's not just the kids. It's everyone. People drinking out of toilets. Officers laughing in front of members of Congress. I brought it up to their superiors. They said, Officers are under stress and act out sometimes. No accountability. 
CNN's Nick Valencia is in Clint, Texas, where one migrant detention center for children is located. Nick, some of these members of Congress just spoke. What else are they saying? Well, they were in there for about an hour total, Jake, and Representative Joe Kenney was the first to emerge after about 20 minutes. He says he noted the capacity issues, estimating about 25 migrants currently in the facility. It is worth noting last week when I visited, along with a tour of reporters, there was a total of 117 migrants. So if he's seeing capacity issues at 25, you can only imagine the conditions that we saw last week. Uh, it was Chairman Joaquin Castro that spoke first uh, uh, for the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. He called the conditions dehumanizing, saying that this country is in a very dark place. When we went into the cell, it was, it was clear that the water was not running. There was a toilet, but there was no running water for people to drink. In fact, one of the women said that she was told by an agent to drink water out of the toilet. Some of the members uh, emerged emotional. It was Representative Ayala uh, Presley who came out and was comforted briefly while she made her impassioned comments saying that she will always speak truth to power. Uh, these uh, Congress uh, men and women saw things today that they wish they hadn't, Jake. And Nick, Customs and Border Protection officials are also now investigating uh, reports that I think we first saw on ProPublica of current and former Border Patrol agents allegedly making, making crude, lewd, sexist, uh, racist comments on Facebook, including jokes about migrants. Uh, what else do we know about that? Uh, there were jokes about migrants. There were uh, derogatory comments about the Latino members of this caucus, explicitly uh, Representative Veronica Escobar and Representative Ocasio-Cortez. One of those posts suggested that demonstrators should throw burritos at those representatives. Uh, we did hear uh, immediate reaction, swift reaction from U.S. Customs and Border Protection, uh, saying that they are investigating these allegations. They are taking them very seriously. Uh, as you mentioned, they were first reported by the investigative unit at ProPublica. And it was just a short time ago, Jake, that I had a chance to speak off camera with Representative Ocasio-Cortez. She said what cannot be lost on this all is that 9,500 members were part of this, what she calls very racist Facebook group. She says there's a total of tw uh, 20,000 Border Patrol agents, and that is a significant number to be part of such a vitriolic group. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia in Clinton, Texas for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, a cartoonist says he was let go after one of his cartoons about President Trump went viral. We will talk to the cartoonist next. The pop culture lead now, a political cartoonist let go after 17 years with a newspaper chain and right after this cartoon of his went viral. Political cartoonist Michael Deatter depicted President Trump golfing over the bodies of migrants Oscar Alberto Martinez and his 23-month-old daughter Angie Valeria, who, who drowned trying to cross the Rio Grande River. The president in the cartoon saying, quote, do you mind if I play through? Deatter was a freelance artist for Brunswick News Incorporated. The newspaper chain denies canceling his contract over this cartoon, but critics are questioning if the newspaper chain's ties to a big-time oil giant with interests in the U.S. and a need to be on President Trump's good side may have also played a role in the firing. I want to bring in the cartoonist at the center of it all, uh, Michael Deatter. Thanks so much for, for joining us. So, Michael, why do you think uh, you lost your job? Uh, I don't know, but the uh, the facts of the, of, the, of my situation were that uh, you know I spent 17 years at the paper, and and uh, even when cartoons were axed, which was rather frequently, uh, I always replaced the cartoons. So uh, I spent 17 years, uh, you know, filling spots and doing my job. There wasn't a day that I wasn't working that a cartoon of mine didn't appear. And um, I, I seem to have a good relationship on, on, on a Monday. 
when I was talking to my editor, and then uh, you know I had posted that cartoon online, and on Thursday uh, I was dismissed, and, and and without cause, like without a reason. You know, I I asked, you know, what's the reason for this, and uh, you know I went through the uh, list of items. I mean, was it cost? And they said no. Was it uh, uh, gross incompetence, and I, they said no, and, and or was it my online presence? And again, no. And that's that. That was the end of the conversation. Do you think business interests? Uh, it leaves you to wonder. It leaves you to wonder, right? Do, do, do you think? Do you think business interests in the U.S. played a role in your dismissal? The newspaper chain is old, owned by one branch of the family. Another branch of the family has this big oil business. Needs to be on the good side of the American president. One would think. Could that have played a role? Oh, that, that's the only thing that makes sense, really. Uh, you know, business interests uh, affect all decisions uh, at the newspaper and within the company. The bottom line is 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 the only line, uh, you know, at the newspaper. So, uh, you know, 17 years, you uh, you know what you know how the newspaper works. Uh, it just it, it, nothing else seems to make sense. I mean, if I was given a reason, if they said cost cutting, uh, 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 I would have moved on, or I would have said I was let go because of cost cutting, and maybe maybe the cartoon would have uh, led to the same thing, but probably not. And 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 I would have taken things at face value. I, I wouldn't be sitting here. I didn't. I'm a reluctant, uh, you know former employee. I didn't, I didn't want to create, uh, uh, I didn't want this, you know, I didn't look for this to happen, mm -hmm. you know. I, I didn't look to, for to be fired, but I also didn't look to be, you know, the poster boy for fired cartoonists. So in, in a statement, Brunswick News said your contract was not canceled for the Trump cartoon. It said, quote, this is a false narrative which has emerged carelessly and recklessly on social media. In fact, BNI was not even offered this cartoon by Mr. Deatter. It also said negotiations had been going on for weeks to bring back another reader favorite. What, what do you make of their excuse? Uh, well, uh, number one, uh, the, the, you know, not to dismiss another cartoonist, but the, the, the reader favorite, who is a good cartoonist, is more of an Irving favorite. He's not an uh, Irving is the family who owns the company. Uh, he's an Irving favorite. Um, uh, and, and, and two, I, you know, uh, possibly, I mean, I, you know, I, I had the Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, what I consider an even better cartoon of Sarah Huckabee Sanders a week before, and a cartoon on Trump shooting the media. I mean, uh, uh, all I know is that when the uh, viral cartoon hit stands on a Wednesday, uh, uh, Thursday at, I don't know, one or two or noon, uh, I was let go without justification and uh, not only that I had that morning I thought everything was good so I had provided not mm. one but three cartoons to fill out the week and uh, not only was I dismissed but my cartoons were axed and you know it was it was mm -hmm. it was like uh, hitting a brick wall brick wall I mean yeah uh, had they had they were just going with a reader favorite, uh, they probably would have filled out yeah. the week at least. I have to go. You Political know? cartoonist Michael Deatter, thank you so much for your time. Good luck to you. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. 
It could be used on an upcoming episode.